0: Take one. Welcome to Emancipated. Was it fast? Let me do one more. Welcome to Emancipated. Voices and images from the Tom and the Bradley Center.
1: Hello. In this episode, we share a conversation from Afro-tradition, environmental racism, and black placemaking in Mexico, part of the Black History Month activities here at California State University of Northridge. We invited Ebony Bailey, director of the documentary Jamaica in Tamarindo, and scholars, anthropologist Yuali Rodriguez and historian Jason Porter, to learn more about Mexico's black population. The event was moderated by the Tom and Bradley Center director José Luis Benavides. It is estimated that about 200,000 Africans were kidnapped and enslaved in Mexico by Europeans to work in their colonies. Today, a large percentage of Afro-Mexicans living in Mexico live in the Costa Chica area, located on the Pacific coast in the states of Oaxaca and Guerrero. Ebony Bailey's documentary, Jamaica and Tamarindo, explores African identity in Mexico City, where there are more than 200,000 Afro-Mexicans.
2: Detrás de la historia de la flor de Jamaica hay un pasado obscuro o más bien, un pasado negro.
3: Estamos en un país donde nos enseñan que no hay negros.
1: La jamaica y el tamarindo me traen recuerdos súper bonitos porque, pues desde que era pequeña, Mi vida ha estado dividida entre la ciudad de México y la costa chica de Guerrero. Yo siempre me he sentido mucho más cómoda estando en la costa. Estando en la ciudad, siempre he sentido que, que pues sí, que definitivamente no encajo justo con, con, con lo que es ser una mujer mexicana. fue tomada, fue destruida fue modificado el paisaje y todo eso se hizo con mano de obra esta mano de obra se trajo de África
2: I thought of this topic initially after filming my First film which is on Vimeo and it's called Life Between Borders Black Migrants in Mexico and it focuses on um, Haitian migrants in Tijuana and also Africans who settled in Mexico City and their children Um, and one of the children that was in that film is Saina who's also in this film and she's the cook and so when I met Saina and I kind of learned more about um, the ingredients that she cooks with and she always would say that she cooks with Tamarindo and hibiscus para hacer su, sorry, to make her um, Senegalese dishes. And I was just like, oh, these are also dishes that are really common in Mexico. So I already knew going off of that first film that I wanted to make my project uh, about like the Afro roots in Mexico. And I think it also just comes like with my own identifying as Blacksican, which is different. It's a different context than being Afro-Mexican, being like a diasporic African that's born and raised in Mexico. In my case, my dad's family is African-American and my mom's family is Mexican. So it is a different context, but I do still feel a fairly strong connection with Afro-Mexicans. I knew I wanted to to explore the topic in a deeper sense um, and explore it in the sense of like history and people who have made place in Mexico since the beginning of the country's founding, whereas with the first film, it was more about migrants. And I was also talking to my friend Leona, uh, who's also in the film. She's the one with the braids. And she was telling me that, did you know that La Florida de Jamaica is from Africa? And I was like, I did not know that. And it started making sense to me why Saina would use these ingredients for her Senegalese dishes. And I didn't even realize that jamaica and hibiscus were the same thing until I started researching for this documentary. When we called it jamaica y tamarindo, I think I just started like focusing more in on that. And it just kind of helped me like center really what the film was going to be about. Um, so from there, I chose the people who I interviewed and i chose them specifically because of how they represented diverse blackness and also how their interests were diverse and what i mean by diverse blackness is that they're all from they're all live in mexico city but they're all from different places because i feel like especially in mexico where black blackness is such a quote-unquote new topic that because people are just now learning that Black people have been in Mexico since the beginning of the country's existence. I think there is like room for people to just put everybody in one box and think everybody is the same. And so it was really important for me to make sure that their Blackness was represented, the diversity in their Blackness was represented and the diversity of their interests.
0: How has the movie been received in Mexico as compared to the US?
2: It's different in the sense that in the U.S. it's usually screened with like niche audiences, like people who are studying either Mexican-American, Chicanx, or uh, or like Afro studies, or it's just like in kind of cultural centers that are like geared towards these audiences, like POC, BIPOC audiences. Whereas in Mexico, Sometimes it's just been public, like public forums that are hosted by the the city of Mexico City.
0: How would you describe a Costa Chica for somebody who hasn't been there?
2: I've been there three times, and um, this last time I went to film, and I went with my friends Chai and Suri, who are from, born and raised in Costa Chica. So it was really cool to film with people who are from there and to like actually collaborate with the community in there was really important for me. It would just have been weird to just go and take pictures of people who I don't know. But I think I would describe it when the first time I went, I remember thinking that it was very beautiful, like scenic, very, very beautiful. I felt like at home, um, because there was just so much blackness. A lot of people either thought I was from there or they knew I wasn't because I guess I do still phenotypically look slightly different than, um, most people who are in La Costa Chica. Uh, I would also say that my first impression was that it was very remote. I don't know if remote is the right word, but it, um, in the sense that like, there's not great connection to the internet. You know, La Costa Chica is one of also, the one of the most socioeconomically lowest areas of Mexico too. And I think that also plays with like systemic racism. And so I also don't want to like romanticize like the very real struggles that happen there. But everybody is super nice and super hospitable. Um there's one other story I have where I was at a like a restaurant and this woman, uh, Afro-Mexican woman came up to me. And she said, De dónde eres negrita, like where are you from? <laughs> and I said, Oh, eso de California. And she's like a poco hay negros en estados unidos like she said oh there's black people in the u.s <laughs> and then i told her like that's funny because people think there are no black people in mexico and then we just laughed <laughs> but but it was funny that that was just like a funny story of like wow i didn't even think that people wouldn't even associate black people with the u.s but yeah <laughs>
0: I asked you that question because obviously we're in California, we're in Los Angeles and Los Angeles region is receptor of uh, people that migrated from Costa Chica, right? So we have people from Costa Chica here in Pasadena, Santa Ana, Oxnard and other places of of the Los Angeles uh, area. When we started doing this, wanted to invite uh, Ebony to present her uh, film, we realized and I wanted to have somebody who had a a more robust (laughs) Uh, knowledge about what's going on in Mexico, right, with Afro-Mexican populations. Uh, And I discovered two wonderful uh, young scholars, uh, Jason uh, Porter, um, he's a PhD candidate in history at Northwestern University. And obviously he's studying uh, in the intersection of agrochemicals, ecology, food, energy, and power, and environmental justice in Mexico and in in the United States as well. Uh, He's doing research in Mexico, obviously, he's uh, finishing his dissertation, and he's also uh, part of the Noria Mexico and Central America group, and he's uh, in the editorial committee uh, as a member for the NACLA, which is a really, uh, a very important publication on Latin American affairs, right? And then Yoali Rodriguez, she's uh, a PhD candidate, uh, in uh, Latin American studies at the University of Texas in Austin. She's an anthropologist, right? And she's actually uh, doing field work in the, in the area. She's looking at the uh, at gender, environment, racism, mestizaje, and state politics, right? And, uh, and violence in Mexico. Welcome you both. You are listening to Emancipated, voices and images from the Tom and Elto Bradley Center. Jason, you go first.
3: Yeah, so I'm gonna give a little background uh, just to give a little roadmap. I'll start a little in the colonial period and I'll talk a little bit about arieros and the importance of Afro-descendant um, muleteers um, like Vicente Guerrero and Juan Alvarez who both became presidents of Mexico and were incredible independence leaders. I'll talk a little bit about arieros. I'll talk a little bit about the geographic uh, othering of blackness in Mexico as something that takes place in Guerrero. I'm from Philadelphia, so a lot of people associate Philadelphia with a place where bad things happen. I think there's a similar association with like Guerrero, with Guerrero, like, you know, like Cosa Chica, Acapulco, Tierra Caliente, La Montaña, it doesn't really matter. The whole state is really dangerous. Um, and it's also a state full of beauty, so much beauty. When I started studying Guerrero, first time I went there was 2013. My mother was like, you can't study it. And I was like, bet. Let me bring my grandparents down there. I took my grandfather fishing in Zihuataneco. And after that, she never gave me a problem. So um, maybe in questions, I'd I'll, I'll love to talk a little bit more about um, the environment in particular. Very dry, shrub-like um, environment actually reminds me of you know where I went to um, elementary school and middle school in Tucson, Arizona, um, in terms of it being a very um, uh, not not like big, it's not a jungle, it's not Chiapas, it's not La- La condon, you know, it's, uh, it's a little bit higher than like the Yucatan, but okay, quick on the background. So environmental racism was really important in the, the, the explanation of why people of African descent were brought to um, Nueva España in the very beginning, right? Essentially the notion that the people of the Western Africa is being disease resistant and wouldn't die in the same droves as then the, you know, the terrible amounts of you know, people who indigenous uh, communities that died because of smallpox and other diseases brought by Europeans, right? Europeans weren't happy with that incredible amount of death. They didn't necessarily try to prevent it either but they lost their labor pool. They lost a massive amount of labor pool, especially in coastal regions like Veracruz, um, Sinaloa, which also had a very big Afro-descendant population in the colonial period, but also Guerrero and, and, and Oaxaca. Also, Campeche had a slave had a slave port, um, and then also there were a lot of um, Afrodescendants in the in in what now is Quintana Roo because of Belize, but because of these concentrations and the idea that black folks or people of African descent could be in these hot climates in the coast. They could withstand these diseases. They could be like Ebony said, in these remote areas, very far from the cities, very far from anything. You know, One time I was in Costa Chica, I actually woke up, there was a rattlesnake in my room and had the, the abuela in my, you know that killed it for me, and I got bitten, where would I have gone? I was 300 miles away from a hospital, right? So that just gives you an example of how dangerous it is, just any everyday life in Costa Chica. You know, it's a place filled with cascabels or, you know, morado uh, rattlesnakes, right? A mere bite would be so much more devastating if you're in a Metapec than if you're in Santa Cruz or if you're in, you know, in Acapulco, even closer to the hotels, right? So the idea of being remote, being hot, being, you know, places where diseases until to this day, you know, you have Costa Chica, it's filled with dengue, it's filled with issues of malaria, it's filled with issues of water contamination, which is gonna get into later and COVID, right? Um, so issues of environmental racism continue to compound the life and the livelihood of people of African descent, people of Afro-Indigenous descent and Mestizos in the Costa Chica, right? Um, the diversity abounds. One thing that's really important during the early independence movement when you know when Jose Maria Morelos was you know who was an arriero, who arguably of african descent from Michoacan Michoacan had a lot of black arrieros in la tierra caliente um, when he came down through the costa chica in 1810 and 1811 it was mulatto sharecroppers Peter gardino writes about this there were mulatto sharecroppers who were like yeah we don't like the spanish let's go right but then there were also militia men who were of african descent in parts of the costa chica as well who were like we kind of want to vibe with the Spanish. So just to, you know, I think that's, you know back to Ebony's point, there isn't one idea of blackness. There wasn't just one association with what did blackness or afro or representation mean to the Mexican independence. But you know, one thing that is very clear that from 1815 to 1820, when the independence movement of Mexico largely stopped where was it fought? In the coast of Guinea by whom? Afro and Afro-Indigenous people, under the leadership of Vicente Guerrero. And, oh my goodness, there's, an, there's a famous um, woman who, who had five sons, but she was also a, a beast on the battlefield, also from Tixla for like uh, Vicente Guerrero. Her last name was Catatlan. I can't remember her first name. But anyways, there was also, also women, Indigenous women leading this movement too. But I just wanna highlight how important those five years were that it's arguable that Mexico wouldn't have became what it did when it did in 1821 had it not been for that five years that Arieros and other people of African descent rallied around Vicente Guerrero and fought and fought and fought. I think that's really important to remember that it's just not about presence and that they exist that they existed at the important times and the foundation of this of of Mexico I'm talking like I'm still living in Mexico City but I want to get into the 20th century. So I talked about the othering of Guerrero is really kind of tragic. And if you look at a lot of the military officials in Mexico during the Perfidiato, they're actually really, really, really interested in the life and betrayal of Vicente Guerrero. How did this man, you know, lead you know the independence movement for five years almost by himself? Become the first Afro-indigenous president of Mexico in 1829, abolish slavery in 1829. Or Elected 1828, abolished slavery in 1829. But then he's rushed out of Mexico City, chased into Guerrero. He's tricked, captured, and executed. And for the rest of the 19th century, Mexican politicians have to live with how they betrayed Vicente Guerrero, especially the liberal party. And I think, you know, when Juan Alvarez, who was the right man hand of Vicente Guerrero, leads the plan of Ayutla to fight against Antonio Santana de de, uh, Lopez de Santana to basically usher in Benito Juarez's period, he gives up the presidency right away because he doesn't want to get betrayed like Vicente and he goes back to Guerrero. And until the rise of Acapulco in the 1940s, Guerrero is without major roads that lead from Mexico City to Acapulco. It's the only state in the country that doesn't have a railroad, a Porphyrian railroad to connect. And we're talking about Acapulco, which was the bread and butter of the colonial period, falls off for the 19th century. There's no investment, it is abandoned. It is the least in, it is the least connected. But then things shift with Acapulco. Not only is Acapulco this, this gem that brings in everybody around the world wants to see, but it's also the major producer, the Costa Chica, Costa Grande and Costa Chica, the major producer of oil seeds, cotton, coconut, um, sesame seeds. And you're like, why do these matter? The reason why they matter is because they become these fungible or interchangeable parts that produce our soaps, our processed foods, our detergents, for instance, a lot of the gas masks that were used in World War I and World War II came from coconuts from Costa Chica and Costa Grande. A lot of the glycerin used in bombs, a lot of the materials that are used to feed people in Mexico City, you know, to make the margins, to make the manteca, right, come from different oil producing crops that come from Costa Chica. But you know what's really violent about that is that oil seeds are just that, they're fungible. When you read that label and it says this package of chips may contain cotton seed or coconut oil or sesame seed oil, literally the company is saying right then and there, we may need this community one year, we might need this community the next, I don't know, we probably don't need this community you know, if this price is low. So essentially they became interchangeable producers of commodities wherein that they were, when you were adding value into the agricultural commodity chain, that value added never got to Costa Chica. That value added never got to Costa Grande, right? So while they became, and Guerrero became the make the world's largest producers of coconut. Every and coconut products are in thousands of, you know, coconut is in thousands of products. But the process and added value is always in manufacturing. It's always in changing it into an oil that's made somewhere else, right? So that money never goes back to that. And that to some extent also explains like kind of the divestment that is, you know, that feeds in with Acapulco, right? And I just want to end with that to kind of show on so many different levels, this coast, this space, these people have been fundamental in the formation of Mexican nation, but then also the political economy of, you know, a lot of these, a lot of the foods, feeding Mexico City did not require just Mexico City, right? Feeding Mexico City, required a lot of the Pacific, Sinaloa, Nayiri, and Guerrero in particular. And a lot of the campesinos in the agrarian reform that built those, and I could get into this history a little bit more how, how corporate agrarian reform was, even as far back as the 1930s that tied the, 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 the agriculture of the coast to the feedings of cities, that essentially agrarian reform was for urbanization. And it never was to actually figure out ways to pay farmers in rural spaces. This isn't just a Costa Chica problem, right? But I think it's compounded by, you know, the fact that they've been neglected both politically, geographically, in terms of public health. And I think there's a great place that will leave Yoeli off because she, she also works on... The oil seeds weren't the only things that are being produced in the coast. They're not the only things that have left this space, you know, with disproportionate amounts of deforestation and erosion and contamination. And uh, she, she'll hit that out the park. Thanks, Jason,
0: it's wonderful. Thanks for your presentation. Yoali, would you mind uh, presenting yours? We will have a discussion after that.
4: My presentation for today is titled Environmental Racism in Amstizio Geography. First of all, um, what is environmental racism? It's a concept that uh, surged in the 70s and the 80s in the context of US in the environmental justice movement. Uh, Basically, it means how people of color are disproportionately affected by environmental injustices. In this case, in the context of Mexico, how black and indigenous people are disproportionately affected by environmental policies and practices in Mexico. First, I wanted to share uh, how it started everything and how I came there. I I arrived there in September of 2017 to the Chacahua Lagoons in the Costa Chica area that Ebony and Jason have described before but it's in the state of Oaxaca. So basically, Cristina is a fisherwoman, a black fisherwoman. She was in the middle of the lagoons, and she felt an unusual movement of water. She was surprised and scared, and how she describes this scene is the water started to look like it was boiling a lot of bubbles, as if something was being born from below. The water got very hot. It started to smell like sulfur. What Cristina discovered later after this scene is that Uh, the unusual movement in the water, it was because of an earthquake, a 7.1 scale Richter earthquake that had a lot of damages on communities in Oaxaca, but even in Mexico City, in Puebla, in Morelos, there were so many communities affected by it. But the curious and also at the same time, not so curious part of it is that these uh, other consequence to the environment in the Chacahua lagoons, it didn't appear in any newspaper, no one knew about these consequences. And this is part of how it is environmental racism in the sense that some consequences are racialized and they don't matter for news or for the government. And that's why they're also invisibilized. One day after the earthquake, thousands of fish were found floating there. I asked the people, what is the consequence of this? And from their deep knowledge of the environment and what was happening, they say basically that there were toxic gases on the subsoil of the lagoons and with the movement of the water, these gases came into the surface killing the fish. And unfortunately, this was not the first one or the last time that happened. I was in the Costa Chica area for one year, so I was 12 months living there. And this was a scene that you would see any other day. Like When you would approach to the lagoons, you would see fish of all sizes, small, large, dead on the bay of the lagoons. My research questions are how does environmental racism function in the context of mestizaje? As many of you all know, mestizaje is the ideology on how the Mexican state was founded. This is a national myth. And the myth says that basically all Mexicans, quote unquote, are mestizos. And this means it's a mix of Spanish descendant with indigenous descendant. But as we know in this narrative, basically black population, it's eliminated from the narrative of the nation. And uh, so I wanted to to explore how environmental racism functions in the context of a country that basically denies racism because the argument is, since we're all mixed, then there's no possibility of the existence of, of racism. However, I believe that is through geography and through environmental racism that we can see one of the many concrete ways that racism works in Mexico. And the second question was, what are the practices of survival used by Black and Indigenous women facing human and non-human death? Aside from uh, the ecocide that is happening, the Chica area is also affected by narcotraffic, Specifically, also in the communities that I was working with, it is a narco route. So, what happened in the early 2000s? The government tried to make a ecotouristic project to create a bay in between the Pacific Ocean and the lagoons. So they built these breakwaters that are basically like all these huge blocks of concrete and rocks. However, what they did was disconnected the ocean from the lagoons, creating the isolation of the lagoons and the stagnation of the water. So the lagoons usually were having oxygen from the ocean, but now with these, after this project, it disconnected and left the lagoons without the oxygen from the Pacific Ocean. What is also important to say here is that uh, local people—they constantly said to the people from the government, the engineers that were there working, like this is not going to work. What is going to happen is you're going to disconnect the lagoon from the ocean. And what did the government and the engineering said? Like you don't know anything. We're the ones who are the experts. Another factor is uh, there's an oil lime factory uh, very close to the lagoons and all the waste from this factory go into the lagoons and because this lime oil is highly acidic and toxic. And a third factor is that uh, the Costa Chica area is the most big producer of papaya crops, but also of many other crops that are growing. And obviously with this, there's a lot of use of pesticides and through air through the rain and air. All these pesticides also get into the lagoons, So now the lagoon is basically slowly dying and is on risk of dying. I wanted to share also on a concept that I'm proposing for my dissertation and I hope my future book that is called Mestizo Geography and I define Mestizo Geography as a material tool of the mestizaje ideology to dispossess and eliminate black indigenous territories and their inhabits. Basically Mexican state saying all that is in the Mexican uh, territory is federal uh, ownership. All this territory is also mestizo identity. So they impose an identity, but they also impose ownership over the lands, ancestral lands of indigenous people, of black populations. And basically, mestizo geography could be understood as a tool of the mestizaje nationalism. And so with my dissertation, I wanna explain how through this mestizaje ideology that is deeply anti-black and anti-indigenous, we can see it not only in abstract ways as ideology, but we can see it in concrete ways through the ecocide and elimination of black and indigenous geographies. And as Ebony also was saying, for me, it was important not only to go there and impose my project. So I did my my ethnography on, on based on the principles of activist research. So when I arrived to the community, I also asked, like, how can my dissertation can be used for something? No? And people from the community were like, OK, we need that you denounce what is happening with the lagoons and then you make a documentation of what is happening. So in this sense, this has been a dialogue and a collaboration with the people and women in the community until today. And it's also based on principles of feminist ethnography. And what does this mean is basically that through my work, I'm also denouncing the structures of power that are happening in the region. I did 14 months of fieldwork in the region that I live there. 66 in-depth interviews, oral history, participant observation, uh, but I also did community mapping with women to understand how they're relating to their territory. And I also did multisitore ethnography in the coast of Oaxaca, Oaxaca City, and Mexico City. And what have people been doing against this ecocide? Of course people have been mobilizing in multiple ways. Some men from the community that have been doing protests in front of the government office in Oaxaca and Mexico City Uh, There have been also, with the collaboration of national human rights organizations, reports of how this ecocide is violating multiple human rights. And in 2018, the case was actually taken to the Inter-American Commission of Human Rights as a case of environmental racism. But until today, again, the Mexican state has not done anything about it. Usually, this is how we think of activism, right? Like, protest, human rights reports. But in my dissertation, I also wanted to explore a broader definition of activism. How can we think of politics in the everyday life, specifically performed by women? So in this sense, I engage also with the feminist, economist, Marxist, Silvia Federici, and her work of everyday work of reproduction of lives through domestic labor. This is how domestic work and domestic labor actually is reproducing life by solving the practical needs that we need to survive every day. In the case of the community, women, for example, are doing tortillas, fishing, cooking, cleaning the house, because they're facing this ecocide and the primary source of living that is the lagoons, either for consumption of the fish or for fishing and then selling the fish. Basically, they have food scarcity and they have to start like thinking of other ways to keep living. So I found that they were also doing mutual aid initiatives. For example, in between women, they take care of each other's children when some of the women have to go out of the community to work or if they're fishing. They also exchange food when there's lack of food and they cook together. So there's actually like constant community work. Uh, for example, women each month until today, they're cleaning the lagoon. They say so the lagoon can have one access of oxygen, a point of oxygen. And they're also starting and reproducing mussels because they were also affected by it. And another project that they have is to start reforesting the lagoons with the mangroves because the mangroves are also dying. So they're trying like to reforestate it. And well, that would be all. And thank you again.
0: Thank you so much. Your research, Joali, is just amazing. I think it resonates with me. I'm Mexican, right? So I can understand this ideology of mestizaje being an ideology of oppression, right? And violence against indigenous and Black people. And Jason's uh, presentation also makes me aware how much Black history is central not only to understanding the US history, but also how Black history is central to understand Mexican history. I think I'm gonna leave it there on behalf of the Bradley Center and obviously the California State University, Nordridge, which we're hoping we can get these wonderful scholars here at Nordridge somehow. I'm really thankful for all the work that you guys are doing. Ebony obviously is a media maker, right? Which is very important for people to know what's going on and her documentary is really uh, unique. And I'm hoping that she will continue exploring these kinds of issues, right? It's hard to be a, a documentary filmmaker, especially an independent one. So you need funding and half the time you need to apply for damp grants, et cetera, just to get some money rolling so you can do uh, your work. So I'm hoping that we will be able to serve also as a resource for her and also for Jason and and Wally, in case you want to pursue uh, something else that we are connected with right? Uh, thank you so much and thanks to all of you for tuning in.
1: Thank you. This was part 1 of Afro tradition, environmental racism and black Placemaking making in Mexico. In part 2, we'll hear a Q&A with our three guests. The music from the film Jamaica and Tamarindo is by Chai Locote, and this episode was produced by Marta Valier.
0: You have just listened to Emancipated, voices and images from the Tom and Ethel Bradley Center at California State University, Northridge. Please stay tuned for our next episode.